This is a Stand Up New York Labs production, providing you podcasts since 2013. Hey everybody, Raylan Casper White here with another festive episode of X-Ray. I am still in Israel. They will not let me out. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but um, I'm still here exploring... Um, the other side of Israel, I interviewed Boaz Gaon, uh, who was a, uh, an entrepreneur. A lot of those here, what they call it, Startup Nation. Uh, and now I'm here with, now, these names are fucking ridiculous. Is it, okay, it's Aaron, I got that. Shashan? Shashan, yeah. Shashan, Aaron Shashan. And what, what does that mean? Well, my, the father of my grandfather, who came from Odessa to Israel, came with a family name, Marmorstein, which is like marble stone, and wanted to Hebrew the name. Okay. So... Shaish is marble, and Shaishon is like small marble. So he, he was very like big small big testicles. Big. Why not call them big marbles? <laughs> so so we're we're the only Shaishons in the world, apart from one Indian who lives in in Brazil. And I'm not joking. Now, okay, tell me a, a little bit about what uh, what you do and what your organization. It's an NGO. I love saying NGO because I always feel like it's some some sort of exotic film with some English actors in it when I use NGO. But what does your NGO do? So, so the Real Group is a non-for-profit, an Israeli non-for-profit, that empower people in position of leadership, authority, and influence to tackle the challenges that Israel, the Israeli society, and the Jewish people are facing. We use two unique packages uh, to us. One is a package of theory, methodology, and a software technology that helps us look at blind spots of Israeli decision maker- makers. And a second is an impact approach, which allows us a relatively small team working in aircon offices in Tel Aviv to generate global impact. Now, what does that mean? Give me an example of a, a leader that has a blind spot. So, uh, you know, this whole theory started in 73 following the Yom Kippur War. Uh, you had a lot of wars I can't fucking keep up. Yeah, so the 73 war, the Yom Kippur War, is, is a war that Israel was surprised following an invasion by Egypt and, and, uh, and uh, Syria. To Weren't they also surprised in 48? That, uh, not really. I mean, it wasn't a surprise. In 73, it was six years following the Six Days War in which Israel has an overwhelming victory. So despite a very explicit uh, uh, warnings, including by King Hussein to Prime Minister Golda at the time, the Israeli decision makers did not foresee the, the obvious. Was it just arrogance? It, it was an arrogance, and even when facts that surfaced contradicted the mindset of people, it was very easy to, uh, uh, to disregard it. But it, it, it is also a very human thing to do. Every, every person has a mindset, has a concept, has a perception of the reality, and even when the reality contradicts this perception, it's not very easy to, uh, to adapt your mindset to where the reality is going. I, I find that with d- dating. Like, I keep telling the guy likes me, the guy wants me, even though no calls, and when I see him, he says stuff like, please step away. So it takes me a long time to kind of click in and accept so you find, okay, so now is this a political organization, just like a right-wing leaning? Is this like a Zionist organization, or is there no political agenda, so to speak? We're an Israeli organization, we're a Zionist organization, but we are not, we are apolitical or nonpartisan. In the Israeli, uh, you, you cannot locate us in the Israeli political uh, spectrum. Obviously, we look at issues that are important for Israel, the Israeli society, and the Jewish world. We're not coming from the UN. We do have uh, a stance on several uh, issues. Two of the main issues that we tackle now uh, are focusing on Israel's relations with world Jewry, when we see a gap. Or like the Jews, the world Jewry. World That's a hard word. Jewry. Jewry, right. Right, Jewry. Right, yeah. uh, and, and second is Israel's international status with a focus on the boycott campaign and what, what is called the 
It's also on Israel legitimacy. Okay, so so you are trying to um, sustain Israel's legitimacy. I've, I've been reading about this, the BDS, the boy right. for my for my listeners uh, that don't know. There's the boycott, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the boycott, divest, and sanction, which is a, an an attempt by I guess pro-Palestinian or people that are trying to punish Israel into changing their policies by boycotting Israeli products or musicians not coming. Like I know Elvis Costello didn't come, and Roger Waters didn't come. And has that was that technique proven effective at all, regardless of whether you agree with it? Okay, so f- first let me maybe correct some misperception okay. because we have to be very accurate. We dis- we make a very clear distinction between the assaults on Israel legitimacy, which is negating the Jewish people's right to national self-determination, namely rejection rejecting sorry Israel's right to exist, which is one phenomena, to a very different phenomena, which is criticism over Israeli policy. Even when such criticism is being perceived as harsh, unfair, or biased, Two different issues. Okay. It is true that sometimes it is difficult to know where a certain criticism mounts into being delegitimization in the sense that it masks the true intention of the critical, but it is very important to make this distinction. We understood that those who are standing behind this campaign are very few in number and are very weak politically. They are ideologically driven, but through and, and, and I want to break another misconception. We're not talking about a headquarters-based conspiracy. There's no one big plan. In the age of information, it is enough to mobilize people using cert, uh, certain tactics. So in recent years, we saw how this relatively small number of organizations, dozens all around the world, dozens but not hundreds, who are motivated by ideological zeal to, uh, you know, anti-Israeli ideological zeal, managed to catalyze what we call an anti-Israeli zeitgeist, the anti-Israeli spirit of the times, which sees Israel as a pariah state. Now, mounting over... Pariah? Pariah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, no, pariah sounds yeah, yeah, better yeah. to me. I mean, it, so it just me. Okay, so let me just get this straight for a moment. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. There's two different things. There's this movement, which is is smaller than people think, kind of like Scientology, right? Like people think it's like millions of people. It turns out there's like 46, and Tom Cruise is related to all of them. But there's this movement that is becoming like a sexy movement, like part of the zeitgeist of kind of like this is the only, this, this is the way to do it because you're getting high profile people to, to especially musicians and artists, right? To boycott. It's also academia, it's science, right? There's a bunch, there's a slew of things that are that are having ramifications. Right, so, so I was referring to the assault on Israel legitimacy, which comes in several theaters. One of them is the boycott movement. Now, I want to make things very uh, clear. It is very likely, and this is my own assumption, and, may be, and some people may dis- disagree with me, I have no doubt that the vast majority of people who support BDS are not dreaming at night about Israel's destruction. They don't perceive themselves as anti-Israel or... Better say, do not perceive themselves as anti-Zionist. Those who are standing behind this movement have a very clear goal. And the way that they craft the movement is that it generates negative sound bites on Israel and actually brand Israel as a Paria state. So their aim is not necessarily to issue a boycott on Israel, but to spark the conversation within which Israel is being framed as the new apartheid. Okay, but isn't it true that opinion has been against Israel from from the out? Israel's not a popular country unless you live on the Upper West Side. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, 
it's got an issue. I think that the 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 tricky thing is is what Israelis perceive as is double standards. Now, because I'm, I'm trying to look at things from a bunch of perspectives, right? I interviewed a Palestinian guy. Palestinians are aiming for self determination. It's it's this kind of weird um, history dance. Like who was here first? You know what I mean? Like this guy told me he's been here eight generations. Someone else said that her thousand years ago they were here. Like it's it's just it feels it's a tricky it's a tricky thing, right? So I feel like probably for a lot of people, as you said, BDS is a way for them to, to feel like it's the it's a nonviolent, so to speak, way of activism for them um, that will hopefully yield international pressure or fiscal pressure on Israel to change its policies. But it's not about destroying the state of Israel. Is that an accurate statement? So I'm saying that it is very likely that the vast majority of people who support BDS really believe that they're supporting Israel will will do good will even you know in their in their eyes even promote peace those who actually stand behind this movement have a very clear goal and they and they say it none of the stated goals of the bds is to you know bring to the annihilation of the state of israel but in practice what it does it brands israel as a pariah state it doesn't carry a substantial criticism over a a specific uh, policy so few years, I'll tell you why this is important. Few years ago, there was a devastating earthquake in Haiti, and the Israel Defense Force, the Israeli Army, sent out a rescue mission to uh, to to on the ground. They, you know, they managed to save lives. They did a wonderful, wonderful work. And then there was this British Parliament member, Baroness Jenny Tong, who is known BDS supporter. She actually is a declared anti-Zionist, and she made a comment that the IDF should check. Whereas his soldiers were engaged in harvesting organs. Now, because Israel is branded among several circles of liberals and progressives as a country that can do no right, people said, you know, what did she say? The IDF should check. It didn't, it, it made sense to them that such a scenario is, is possible. If she had made this statement about France and about, or about Switzerland, two countries that in, in one, you cannot wear a burqa by law. In others, you cannot bear, build a minaret by law. People would have dismissed her immediately. But because Israel is branded in such negative terms, the rumors stick to it. And this is exactly what the BDS is trying to do, to brand Israel as the new apartheid and eventually to delegitimize Israel as a, as, as a country. I feel like, and I'm not torn, I, I don't believe in mass punishment. I do believe if an artist doesn't want to perform somewhere because they don't believe the policy, that's their right. Do I believe that certain academics should be penalized? The whole mass punishment, if you're if you're upset, if you see Israel as mass punishing Palestinians, then you do the same thing, then that kind of, you know what I mean? Then there's a, the hypocrisy there. That's, there's hypocrisy everywhere. Everybody that criticizes is hypocritical. Every country does its own shit. And it's always this hypocrisy. But I'm trying to wonder if the people behind the movement that are actually trying to have bo- companies boycott, you're saying that by delegitimizing Israel, they want they do want Israel to cease to exist. So, so let, let me use another another concept, and this is act of delegitimization, right? Oh. So the people who are standing behind this movement are, are ideological anti-Zionists, you can call them delegitimizers, and they try to engage people with legitimate criticism over Israeli policy, usually coming from liberal and progressive circles, into acts of delegitimization without, of course, them acknowledging or understanding that this is uh, that this is the issue. BDS is an act of delegitimization. As I said, probably most of its supporters do not perceive BDS as as an act as a tool to delegitimize Israel. So, using two artists as an example, Elvis Costello, who canceled his trip to Israel, uh, he was about to give her several concerts. Uh, an artist which I uh, very much yeah, like. I love him and his I love his wife too. I'm I think not. she came. 
Really? I, I think Diana Krall's come to perform in Israel, but I'm not sure. She's like, you know, a jazzy, beautiful, blonde, jazzy singer. I didn't know, I didn't know they were married, but this, but, you know. I'm g- <laughs> maybe they're not married. I don't know his marital status, but maybe they're partners. But anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Anyway, Elvis Costello probably is a person that has legitimate criticism over Israeli policy. And by no means, his decision not to come to Israel, you know, uh, says something about his political stance on Zionism. If I take another artist, Roger Waters, who is obviously motivated by, ideolog- by anti-Zionist ideological zeal, he is a supporter of the BDS, he's a propagator of BDS, and he is definitely a, a, an anti-Zionist, and some people even say that even more than that, maybe even a declared anti-Semite. So let me ask you a question. I mean, this is all hypothetical, but do you think, now that we are dealing with a complicated situation where there is, so if you want to call it occupation, whatever, occupation, not occupation, you know, whatever you want to call it, what do they propose? Do they propose is the, the Jewish people not having a not having a state in general? Like, you know, or do they propose that they just want a two-state solution and in the minute the Palestinians are have have their own state and statehood and self-determination for them, that their criticism of, of the state of Israel will decline or diminish? I mean, do, I, that's the whole point, right? I mean, we are we can't keep continuing like this, right? I mean, is that I don't know how do you see it? So, so BDS is not advocating for a two-state solution. BDS does not advocate for a Palestinian state. In fact, some of the leading members of BDS, if you, if I want, if you want me to name names like is that, Omar Barghouti, Omar Barghouti, exactly, negates Israel's right to exist and even rejects the idea of a Palestinian state by side Israel because seemingly a Palestinian state legitimizes Israel's right to exist in in a context of two state solution. I, I guess I guess I had a misconception because I really thought that BDS was just a, a strategy for people that are um, uh, trying to voice their support for the Palestinian cause and saying, look, no matter what we're doing, this is the only way to affect Israel to change its policies because now Israel is doing whatever it wants. You know what I mean? Or let's say we want them to stop building settlements. We want them to grant whatever. But you're saying it's not even an ideological movement like that. It's much muddier than that? I'll tell you even more than that. It's not even a pro-Palestinian movement. Actually, the BDS as an acronym is almost unfamiliar in the Palestinian t- territories. Edward Said, who happens to be a Palestinian, who had a very, you know, uh, specific views, not favorable of, of Israel, but he came with the concept of Orientalism, namely the way that the West sees and understands and interprets the Middle East in, in a very Orientalistic, distorted uh, way. And BDS is a Western phenomenon, which is very patronizing towards the Palestinians and seemingly knows what is best for the Palestinians. Because, because of BDS, thousands of Palestinians have lost their jobs. For example, there was a soda stream factory. I fucking love soda stream. I always thought that like, soda would give me gas, but it doesn't. It actually helps my digestion. Just wanted to share that with everybody. Go ahead. So because of BDS campaign, soda stream relocated its, its factory and moved it out from an uh, uh, industrial zone in which incorporated uh, thousands of Palestinians. And the fact is that, inc- that I think it was 600 workers, each of one of them sustained a family of six Palestinians. So, so we're talking about s- thousands of Palestinians who lost their job because of BDS. This is not a pro-Palestinian movement. I mean, I think it's tricky. Again, I have to talk to more Palestinians, but it's also this, this, this tricky dance for them, I'm imagining, where they want to be able to make a, most people just want to make a living and be able, you know, be able to feed their families, but they also don't want to continue the status quo where they're working for Israeli. Families. They really, you know, what do you sacrifice in order to get your own state? Do you know what I mean? I think that's probably their part of their inner dilemma because it's like if you keep cooperating with their so-called enemy, you're just going to, you know. But I don't know because beforehand, back before the first int- or second intifada, 
that a lot of them were coming into work here, right? And now it's a lot harder for them to work here. But I don't know how they feel. Do they feel like I'd rather not work for these people because I can, yes, I can feed my family, but I'm just going to be sustaining my, my terrible existence under, you know, occupation or, or I'd rather just fucking work and be able to feed my family. I mean, it, it sucks for those that do want to come in and work and just feed their family. Clearly, there's, there's a tension between Israel and Palestinians. There's, there's a national conflict here. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that the conduct of the campaign, the terminology, all Western and disregards the Palestinians on the ground. I'm sure that for the mere idea, for the principal idea of BDS, there is no ideological rejection within the you know, among the Palestinians. Clearly, they do not love Israel. But I'm saying that the strategy of, behind BDS completely disregards them and is very unconstructive because the, working, the main working assumption of the BDS is that it's all about Israel. If Israel changes its policy, problem goes, occupation ends. Seemingly, those who support BDS per perceive this. And clearly, if this is the view, then you just disregard a very important section. This is the other side. You know, when you look at the Palestinian side, you see that there's a, a division between Fatah and Hamas, within Hamas, between Gaza and the West Bank. So the fact of the matter is that the Palestinians are, I would say, even more than equal partners to the fact that there's a political deadlock. BDS exerts pressure only on one side. So I'm saying that even from a utility point of view, it's not very constructive. So BDS, I, I'm getting that it's a smaller movement than everybody thinks it is, and it's just a small iota of, of the bigger issue. It just sounds desperate at this point, right? It's desperate attempts to what I always see it as, as a perceived bully, right? This is how people perceive Israel as the bully. Back in the day, I from my understanding, Israel was considered the victim, and now it's flipped, and now it's considered the bull. And I think that this whole Holocaust thing where we're not going to be victims anymore, and sometimes people see it as overcompensating. There's a lot of super left-wingy Israelis that I'm meeting, especially in Tel Aviv, right, that are angry and call it apartheid themselves. So it's, it's just as splintered in, in here. Right. I, I want to circumcise your example and say that it's, it's a David-Goliath situation, and Israel is increasingly being perceived as being more the Goliath, while in the past we were perceived as, as, as David. And this is exactly that side, guys, so the spirit of the times that I'm referring to. In the current context, Israel being perceived as very powerful, as, a, as the strong side, and, and therefore there's, there's seeming more expectation from, from Israel, which is legitimate. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not against uh, criticizing Israeli po policy. In fact, I'm a criticizer of Israeli policy myself. But again, the working assumption of the BDS or those who support BDS, that it's all about Israel's fault and they disregard the structural elements that prevented both Israel and the Palestinians to reach, to reach an agreement. Right. No, I mean, it sucks. I mean, I was talking to the Suli. I mean, I think that um, it is so splintered ideologically like you were saying and even geographically. Like, what? The, what? nobody has a solution. I mean, it's, it's just crazy. And I think that it's, it's hard as someone coming from the outside or I guess for the average Israeli you want to embrace Israelis, you know, the Israel's success and how much they built and how much they did for the country. But at the same time, it's painful. Because one thing that Suli mentioned to me that I thought was interesting is that one of the bigger problems is, because Suli, you know, was in prison for stabbing two people. And then he learned about the Holocaust. And he tells this beautiful story about they were watching Schindler's List and they were crying. They go, this is so crazy. We're crying over the ancestors of our prison guards. You know what I mean? And that inner conflict that nobody learns each other other's narrative. I don't think the Israeli kids are learning really what happened to the average Palestinian where suddenly people are coming in and being displaced and, these, and the Palestinians aren't learning, learning about what the Jewish people went through and what kind of brought them over here and gave them such motivation to build. 
And so then you really see it as the other, and then you get into these roles of victim, aggressor, or whatever, or bad guy, good guy. And I find that interesting that education is really where to start. Now, obviously, you're going to start teaching Palestinians about the Holocaust. They're going to be like, fuck you. Like, what do we care? Look at us now. But I think that's the problem for the lefties here, where it's like they feel like Israelis are losing their their compass a bit because it's this this existential fear, but it's clouding, you know, the same ideals that I guess the Zionists came here to to envision or manifest in this country. Is there truth to that, do you think? Well, I, I think that, you know, the Middle East, th- this is the Middle East. We, we live in segregated societies, and I, and, and I completely agree that we don't know and don't interact enough with the other side. By the way, it's not just between Israel and the Palestinians or Israel and its neighbors. It's, it's between Israel's neighbors and themselves, and it's between the Jewish society in Israel. We have uh, four streams of Israeli education. They do not do not meet. Israeli seculars do not meet Israeli Haredi and do not meet. The that's the religious. That, that's the religious. So, so, so it is true. So, and, and I'm sure that, by the way, breaking those uh, uh, boundaries, breaking these walls between those communities who are separate may you know, create a different atmosphere. However, when you talk about the political solution, I think it's a different issue. We have several structural issues that are very profound, that are related to most, most of all geography and society, and uh, which prevent Israel and the Palestinians, Palestinians from reaching an agreement. I think that there's also misconception about the perception of the two-state solution in the eyes of Israelis. I think that the vast majority of Israelis support separation from the Palestinians, and based on a two-state solution principle. The thing is that increasing number of Israelis don't think that this is a viable solution. It's not an ideological opposition, but the likeliness of this to happen, if you look at the recent history of Israel and the Palestinians, is is very uh, not encouraging in this regard. Well, I think that it's, it's, yeah, after going through so many wars, it's terrifying to suddenly have a people that you believe don't want you there think that that's I'd be scared I mean I, I get it but it still doesn't solve the problem because I think that what people realize people realize Jews realize this too is that people will keep fighting for self-determination on both sides like no one's given up over there you know what I mean the the idea of being if you're in the sense of being under occupied not having rights it's untenable to continue and people get more and more desperate and it just declines I mean don't you think I mean, it's spiraling now don't you think I, I completely agree and again I, I heard to your interview with with Soli which was by the way fascinating and and clearly with people like Soli I think that there's there's a lot of you know interaction which is constructive that could take place but Israelis see the more dominant picture at least in their eyes we see Hamas led Gaza Hamas with you know an anti-Israeli ideological stance rejects Israel's right to exist, wants to establish an Islamic state in the whole of the, you know, the, uh, the mandatory the Palestine, the land. And, and so therefore, what, what, you know, what, what stays in the minds of Israelis is this approach. This is the dominant perception of Israelis regarding where the, how the Palestinians is, sees them. Clearly, it is distorted. It doesn't represent all the Palestinians. But you cannot ignore the fact that Hamas does control Gaza and, and attribute it to a certain ideology. So... Your organization, is it trying to encourage dialogue or is it trying just to encourage um, to work on Israel's uh, improvement of Israel's image to the world by by promoting positive stories about Israel or kind of tackling when the media kind of, you know, has that double standard or portrays Israel and what you see is an overly negative light, that kind of stuff. Is that where you're at? No. 
<laughs> Great, I'm glad I got it right. So, so we're working in, in different, uh, different areas. So when it comes to uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, we've been advocating for the principle of separation based on the understanding that in the Middle East, unlike maybe you know, the perception, common perceptions in the West, high fences make good neighbors. Uh, th- this is the reality that we see all around us and, and we've multiple times have written about how would be the right strategy to achieve such a separation based on the principle of the t- two-state solution. We are not an Asbara public relations organizations. We're not about branding. We, we do not brand Israel as, as, uh, you know, as a startup nation. What we want to do is to minimize the tr- detrimental effect of, those, of this ideological core that strives to uh, delegitimize Israel. And by that, we work with pro-Israeli organizations worldwide and coming with several principles. And these principles assert, basically, that we need to drive a wedge between this ideological core that strives to delegitimize Israel and those who may have criticism, who, again, may be perceived as harsh, biased, or or unfair, but very different from uh, from, uh, delegitimizers. And one of the issues that we see, one of the main challenges, is that so far, pro-Israeli organizations, including the government of Israel, and sometimes Jewish communal organizations, have failed to, to make this distinction and are pushing people who, with legitimate criticism over Israeli policies and brand them with broad brush as delegitimizers. And this is exactly the opposite from what you need to do. Well, I think the problem now that a lot of um, uh, is frustrating a lot of uh, people or scaring people is that the American jury, which was always so pro-Israel, is now slowly criticizing Israel more. And people, and you're right. I mean, I think it's tricky to call anybody criticize Israel an anti-Semitic. Like, how do you differentiate? You know, it's it's becoming okay to kind of group that together, where you're criticizing a country's political policies versus, again, you're right, that double standard or saying you guys are always wrong, you're Jew, you know what I mean? They're using that as an excuse to use anti-Semitic tropes, like they had that whole thing with the squ- you know, those two representatives in, in, in the government. Um, so I think you're right, it is, it's bad on both sides, right? It's bad when people kind of label Israel un- without any kind of rhyme or reason, and it's bad when the other side goes, oh, you said you're criticizing, you criticize anything, you're, you're a traitor, and that's very dangerous too. That was a question, but also the answer. You are absolutely right. This this is the situation that that we identify. One of we we are we coming from a very critical point of view on how the establishment is looking at people who has who have legitimate criticism over Israeli policy. And I'll give you uh, an example on how it plays uh, uh, plays out in the U.S. Today we see how increasingly the effects of intersectionality are taking over much of the discourse. Intersectionality is the uh, draws parallels between the struggle of several disempowered populations and minorities in the form of ad hoc coalitions against a perceived form of oppression which is attributed to a white male establishment. Now, young Jews, most of them are liberals, agree with 99% of what intersectionality stands for. So, so I agree that the North American or the American Jewish community faces True challenges. By the way, some of them are not related to Israel. We see how increasing number of Jews feels less connected to communal life, and therefore, when you feel less connected to communal life, you are less likely to support uh, Israel. But clearly, Israel as a factor is playing an important role. Uh, in the past, Israel was a unifying factor, and increasingly, in several communities, Israel has become a polarizing uh, factor. And we see that, for example, when the Jewish community. Uh, strives to navigate within intersectional 
challenges, the challenge of intersectionality. Now, Israel, at, at its core, has got nothing to do with the intersectionality. Intersectionality is not the enemy. In recent years, since 2014, namely the Fer since the Ferguson riots, which were happening uh, parallel to the uh, uh, Operation Protective Shield in, in Gaza between Israel and, and, and Hamas, we see how Israel has been inserted into this conversation and we see a very small ideological core of activists who made Israel an intersectional issue. Namely, if you're a feminist, if you're, namely if you're progressive, you, you support the feminist struggle, you support the LGBT struggle, you happen to be black, you are very likely to be anti-Israel. And BDS has become a legitimate intersectional issue. And for, for young Jews, that creates a dilemma. Most of them feel progressive. Most of them adhere to uh, liberal uh, universal uh, values. And they feel that they have to choose between this, their, lo their, their loyalty to progressive uh, values to their commitment to Jewish communal framework. Because Jewish community supports traditionally Israel, they feel that they have to choose to choose sides. And many of them opt away from communal framework because of the challenge of intersectionality. So in order to tackle this issue, we should not attack intersectionality as a phenomenon. Intersectionality, is, as I said, is a phenomenon that even should be admired, at least in some aspect. But we have to isolate the ideological adversaries of Israel who work within inter intersectional circles and their inter intersectional solidarity supporters. I think a couple of things I have to say about that. First of all, I think that you're right. I think that people that believe in um, this ideal of human rights and kind of a blanket human rights, and you don't have a double standard. You believe in human rights across the board. Again, also people make it easier to be black and white. It's much easier to categorize. And most people don't know the ins and outs and the nuances on both sides. I feel like people are always much easier to kind of make blanket statements, never look on a case-by-case -case basis, never look at what specifically happened here. There's the good guy and the bad guy. It's like my, my kids. I have 34 kids. It's usually who's the bad guy, who's the good guy, who's not the middle-of-the-road guy. Nobody plays with middle-of-the-road guy. Nobody plays with the let's-see-both-sides guy. That's boring, right? So I get that that – but also I've noticed that certain people, especially Jews in America – I think that people like to think of themselves as enlightened. So sometimes I think there's certain Jews that will either under-criticize Israel, which is not doesn't serve you guys at all, because then it's like they can do no wrong, which is stupid. But then you have people that want to feel more enlightened by criticizing themselves, right? So you have people that over-criticize Israel because then it makes them feel more enlightened. Look how enlightened I am. I'm so okay. I have such little ego. I can criticize my own nation. You know what I mean? And then that becomes kind of a, a pride, a source of pride. And it's never about what, What's the actual issue, right? I mean, that's, that's my thought. So I, I feel redundant here because, you, you know, you, you analyze the situation so clearly. So Thank I'm, you so much. <laughs> so I'm not sure what, what's my role here. But no, I completely agree. And I think that the, the core of the matter is that Israel used to be a progressive case. The left or progressives or liberals, and including the Jewish community, looked at Israel 20 years ago through the prism of the kibbutz. And now they look at Israel through the prism of the kibush, occupation in Hebrew. So from kibbutz to kibush, from David to Goliath. And this is exactly the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times that I'm referring to. And BDS clearly is a very important generator of this anti-Israeli spirit of times. Well, I mean, God help me. I mean, I don't. I, I still like Elvis Costello, but I still like Michael Jackson. He's done a lot of fucked up shit. So I'm always trying to separate, but it's hard. And I could care less about Roger Waters. I mean, look, I think it's hard. I, I think I, I admire what's, what's going on here, and I admire what people do, but it is, 
you're just looking at what's the status quo, right? And you're looking at who's got the army, who's got the startups, you know, what looks like Dubai here in Tel Aviv. I mean, what the fuck, you know what I mean? And everybody's doing so well. So you want to embrace that because people are working hard. It's tricky because there is no, Israelis, no matter how you slice it, are not going to be seen as the victim anytime soon, even though they're, they're threatened by all their neighbors and there was, you know, they can be attacked at any given time and they're under existential threat. And some people have said to me, they don't believe it'll exist in 50 years. Like once the Holocaust survivors all die out and the Holocaust as a, as a reason of raison d'etre, I like to throw in a little French when I can, it fizzles out and people won't even know about the Holocaust in, let's say, 100 years. It'll be like a failed experiment. That kind of terrifies people. I mean, do you think that's possible? Do you think Israel is kind of here to stay? I, I think that Israel is a country which has several existential threats. Clearly, if you look at the Jewish history, it's not very encouraging. Uh, so, so clearly there are several threats. But the, by the way, this perception does not negate the approach that uh, shows a lot of empathy to, to the other side. And, and clearly we, we live in a situation where... Uh, you know the Israeli society is doing much better than the Palestinian society, and the Palestinian society living, you know, is living under occupation. But, but you know, those are two different two different things. My concern to Israel is not instead of my empathy to to the Palestinians and to my will to desire to see here two state solution. Not because I care about the, so much about the rights of the Palestinians, but because I also think it's good for Israel. It's hard. I'm a humanist. I care about everybody, but that's what nationalism is, isn't it? I mean, it has its its good size and its bad side. Did you read Homo sapiens? Of course. So, I mean, I think that was interesting where we have these forced constructs of nations, which are kind of just fake, right? I mean, they're created. And of course, they've led to technological developments and, and competition, which has led to, you know, the human species developing and evolving in a, in a rate much higher. But it also creates this false us and them. And at the end of the day, we are all human. Like I would, I wish everybody would care about everybody's rights equally. I don't think you can process it, but that's that's the tragedy. I think of these delineations that are inevitable. The way that's where the way the world works. You're not caring about every starving person in Africa. You care about. It, it, you, you can't process all. But this is that's tragic to me because I'm sure the Palestinians don't. I mean, why would they give a shit about Israelis too on the on the same side? Well, I think we, we again we live in the Middle East. It's a different way of seeing things. I think that we don't have the luxury to uh, to take care about everyone in equal side. You know, looking at the Jewish history, I think it's self-explanatory why. And I, so I'm we are proudly coming from an Israeli point of view. But again, that does not mean that I do not show empathy or feel empathy, real empathy, genuine empathy regarding the suffering of the other side. I I, I certainly do, but you know. I am coming from, from, from a certain point of, of view. Yeah, and I read Sapiens, and I, I agree. I think that we are all imagined communities, but still, it gives you meaning. It gives you a sense of uh, belonging. So even if philosophically, it doesn't mean that you actually come from an ethno or other uh, group. It, it, it doesn't really matter. But I wish that maybe there were more NGOs that were about more encounters and really towards achieving a solution, because while I understand your desire to preserve the you know a proper image of Israel just you know or at least differentiate between legitimate criticism and blanket criticism that that actually delegitimizes has a bigger kind of ramification on the existence of Israel and its and its survival but that there is more a desire to um, to connect and and to care because I think that is the only way because I think that if they only care about themselves and you're only caring about yourselves this loop is gonna is gonna escalate at some point into whatever it is, you know the next big war you know and and it's not your job particularly, but I'm saying you're so eloquent, you're so intelligent, and you're not triggered. I feel like people like Sully that see kind of both sides. 
I wish that there was more of that. Just for me coming from the out, you know, from the outside. No, I, I wish there was more of that, but. So, so, so optimistically, I think that it can happen. The other side of the, of the coin, the pessimistic side, is that I'm not sure that this is the key to generate a breakthrough. I really believe that empathy could help. I really believe in breaking barriers. I really believe in acknowledging the narrative of everyone. But I think that some of the elements of this conflict are structural, as I said. They are geographical. They are religious. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think that talking between people who are like-minded from the other side is the key to actually moving to a different phase in this conflict. Well, I wholeheartedly disagree respectfully. No, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not the, I'm not the Dalai Lama. Nobody's been able to find a solution until now. But I'm having a good time and I'm getting late a lot. So at the end of the day, I'm happy I'm here. Um, <laughs> I had to take it. I had to go there. I always had to go there. I know we're sitting here. I want to let everybody know we're sitting here without AC. It is hot as fucking balls here. It's small marbles, big marbles. Everything's just melting and sweating. But I wanted to thank you. You've actually illuminated. And read that article that Eric Alterman, uh, it's an op-ed all about BDS. And so read it. And yeah, I think you should write, maybe you write an op-ed for the Times. You submit a nice op-ed for the Times. Why not? I will. And I will dedicate it for you. I love it. Aaron, um, Marblestein, Goldstone, Shayshan, shout out to the Indian guy in Brazil who shares his name. He's probably laying in Rio in the thong. This is Raylan Casper-White. Uh, if you've been confused by everything we discussed here, you are not alone. There are support groups to help make sense of this fucking shit pile of conflict and, and confusion and terminology and acronyms and adversity and triggers and human rights and intersectionality and, and land. We're talking, about a t- we're talking about a country the size of a TJ Maxx, okay? So for all you guys that love TJ Maxx, there are actually some branches of TJ Maxx that are larger than this area, and they're all fighting over everything. So if you're in America, be grateful that you live in Montana, and don't fight with your neighbors if you have more than, like, three centimeters of land, okay? Because this is, this is a big These are people that are both connected to their land to such an extent that really, I mean, it's tragic, right? I mean, the endless conflict and, 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 and suffering. But I do applaud you, and you've been, thank you for, for, for coming and, and dealing with my ignorance. Uh, and stay tuned um, for next, uh, next episode. I'll be interviewing Itai Engel. He's an Israeli journalist who's been embedded in uh, combat zones all over the world. And talk to him, brilliant guy, very tall, very skinny, very skinny and tall, taller than me. I think I reached his belly button. It got a little awkward when I approached him. But um, I love you all. This is Raylan Casper White signing off. <laughs>